Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Well, good morning, church. How we doing? Woo! Online, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, for those of you who are new with us, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at, uh, at First Baptist, and we're excited that you're you're joining us today. I'm going to be honest, this is, uh, this is not, a, uh, not a fun text we're going to be dealing with today. We're going to be in Genesis 18 and 19. So for those of you who have your Bibles or tap open or flip open, whatever you want to do, you can head over there. Uh, but today is one of those, uh, one of those days that uh, we continue to say we want to be authentic with who we are. We want to be authentic with what it is that we believe. And we are going to continue to stand on the truth of God's word and uh, like it or hate it, and Scripture actually says that the majority of the world will hate it, uh, we're going to present it. Um, and so, uh, so as, you're, as you're flipping there, um, you, uh, while you're doing that, uh, there has been an argument that has been waged for thousands and thousands of years. And today, I just want you to know that I'm going to resolve it, okay? I'm going to resolve it. Uh, but before I do, I want you to answer this question, whether uh, you write it in the comments online, you just jot it on your notes. If you're here, think about it or share it with the person that maybe you, uh, maybe you came with. I want you to come to the conclusion right now, do you believe that man is inherently good or inherently bad? So I want you to, to resolve that question amongst yourselves. Go ahead and do that. I'll give you a second. It's going to feel awkward in here unless you guys talk. Go ahead. Okay. Good. Good. I want you, I'm sure you guys have all solved it as well. Congratulations. I gave you guys about 10 seconds to be able to do that, but just put a pin in that answer for right now. Okay. We're going to hold on to that uh, for, for just a second, but, but I actually believe that the philosophical difference between man being inherently good or bad is what makes so many people unable to see eye to eye with one another. Because I think, I, I honestly think at the base of most philosophies, psychologies, ideolo ideologies, theologies, all of the G's is the understanding of whether or not man is good or bad. And we base our worldview from what it is that we believe about the nature of man, whether that be good or bad. This is oftentimes called the enigma of man. Okay, and so it's, it divides the world really into, into two camps on this question. Those people who believe that the world is, or, or man is good, turn to all things that are, that are beautiful and intelligent and creative and progressive and kind and decent and loving human beings, right? Like that is, it is, it is good. And there's an, an enormous presence of these, these wonderful characteristics. And all of these characteristics are characteristics, by the way, that we get from God. We are created kind of in his image. Okay. And then there's the other side of things. All of you people who are dark thinkers, right? The realists maybe in the room uh, who turn to the adage that man is born to sin, and go on to, to cite the kind of endless evils and, and destruction that, that we indeed wreak on one another disastrously and shamefully uh, in, in almost all areas of life. Actually, if you look at most psychology books, I read uh, 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 like a sentence of a psychology book, um, but most psychology books will tell you that the, 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 the politically correct psychology of our time generally tells us 
or at least it implies uh, that if free of abnormality, this is how it says it, free of abnormality, human beings are humane, constructive, fun, and safe to be with. Okay, free of abnormality, and that's going to be our kicker there. Free of abnormality, human beings are humane and constructive, fun, and safe to be with. Okay, and, and I agree with that. In man's original state, free of abnormality, free of sin, that we are good and perfect like Adam and Eve, in the same way that God created Adam and Eve. And if you're like a lot of people, you, you probably want to believe in the goodness of humanity, right? You want to believe that if you walk down the street and you see an old lady getting mugged, because apparently this is New York City's in a 1990s movie, you, you walk down the city, you see an old lady getting mugged and, and her purse getting taken from her, you want to believe that you or somebody else near you is going to step in, that somebody is going to do what is right, something's going to do what is just, because man ultimately is, is good. Like that's what it is that we want to believe. Right? We, we want to believe that, and you would hope that the majority of people would indeed do the right thing. I had, I forgot what it is that me and my son were talking about, my son Micah, but we were talking about something, and it was something bad that had happened, and he just looked at me and said, Dad, why would people do that? And then I got the opportunity to talk about the origin of sin, and I, no, just kidding, I didn't do that. I was like, oh, man, sin, Micah, that's just what it kind of, what it kind of is. But this is honestly, this is probably one of the reasons that a lot of people have a hard time with the Old Testament. Actually, a lot of people have a hard time with Christianity in general, because oftentimes when we look at the Old Testament versus the New Testament, we feel like we have kind of two different gods that we're dealing with, right? Old Testament, it seems like we have like this mean, vengeful, wrathful God who like all he wants to do is like wipe out cities. Right? He actually blesses some tribes so they can take out other tribes. Like we're not just talking about like the warriors that we're talking about, like men, women, children, all of their belongings, like get rid of it sort of thing. It's hard. It's jarring. Actually, the book of Judges, if you haven't read the book of Judges, there it is story after story after story of God's judgment on those people. Right? There's actually even a fascinating one in the book of Exodus. Uh, we're we're going to be walking through the book of Exodus after Easter. I'm really excited about it. Um, and uh, in the book of Exodus, me and, and our ministry intern, Michael, were, were talking through it the other day about a story of the Levite tribe who are actually, God tells them, hey, go wipe out thousands of people who actually proclaim the name of God. And it's hard because us as Christians, we're like, no, God is love. I've been, like, I was brought up like God is love. That's what God is supposed to be. He's love. He's love. He's love. And then oftentimes we don't, as a church, get the opportunity to talk about the fact that, yeah, God is love. But guess what? God is also wrath. And it's a hard thing for us as a church to talk about. And so we're going to be open about it today. We're going to be honest about it today. And we're going to do our best to kind of deal with the text because as we get through the, as we get into the text, we need to come to an understanding of a fundamental belief of Christianity. And that fundamental belief is man is inherently bad. Those aren't my words. Those are, those are Paul's words and Jesus' words and scripture over and over and over again that tells us that man is inherently bad. And I agree with that because I agree with what scripture says. So when we open up to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19, a nice cheery one that we're going to deal with today, we have to take a closer look about the state of man. And we also have to take a look at the state of God in order to properly understand what is at work. Because if we start with the framework that man is, is good, then God in this story is not loving. God is mean and vindictive. 
And how could anybody love a God who is mean and vindictive? But if we start from the standpoint of man being inherently bad, which is what Scripture says, then we arrive at a much different conclusion about God. God in this instance then is very just. And his wrath has been poured out because that is what is deserved. And if you're a parent, I know a lot of you in here are parents, maybe you're a parent if you're joining us online and you're trying to pay attention because kids are running around your couch and that sort of thing right now. But if you're a parent, you, like, you understand that kids come out inherently bad. There is nothing good about a child as it comes out. Actually, as it comes like the first thing you have to do is clean it. How mean is that? Like as a child comes, like there is nothing good. Like everything about an infant is selfish and impatient and self-serving. They just kind of do, do whatever it is that they want after, it is, after they pop out. They're like, hey, I'm here. I'm going to do whatever it is I want to do, and you're going to deal with it. Right? Man is inherent. They have to be taught to be loving. They have to be taught to be kind, how to think beyond their own needs and desires, how to share, how to appreciate others. Don't believe me? Put a cookie on the counter, one cookie on the counter with five kids and a hungry dad and see how selfish people are. Right? That's how, like, man is inherently bad, and it'll settle that debate about man being good or bad real quick. But the, the Bible consistently describes the human condition as innately fallen from birth incapable of true goodness without God's assistance. Actually, Romans tells us that. Paul is actually quoting the book of Psalms in this. It's in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. It'll be on the screen. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Let's just sit in that for a second. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. We need to start here. With the idea that every single human from birth is fallen. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, or Jeff Milhan, every single person is fallen. He's just so kind, right? He's just so kind. But every single person, the human condition is bad according to Scripture. So if we start there that man is bad, man is sinful, man is fallen, we can now open up to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 20 and read about God destroying an entire city and its inhabitants. Okay, so Genesis 18, starting in verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great. And their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So at this point right here, God is like, hey, look, I'm going to go look. I'm going to go check on Sodom and Gomorrah. And if their sin is as bad as it says, we're going to deal with it. Let's keep going. Verse 22. The men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Okay, so what we need to know about Abraham, Abraham is kind of the father Abraham has many sons, right? So for those of you who grew up in the church, you know that, you know that song. He is the father of the, the Jewish faith, really. Okay, he is a man who is counted as righteous in the Old Testament. Actually, the fact that he, he goes to heaven, he get, gets to glory in the Old Testament, right? It, it, it's one of the verses that allows us to understand how it is that people went to heaven in the Old Testament, that his faith was counted to him as righteousness, meaning he had faith, and because of the fact that he had faith, he was now righteous, glorified with God. Okay, but he is like God's chosen dude in the Old Testament. Okay, you can't read the Old Testament without reading about Abraham, and so he is a righteous man. So he, he, he understands what it is that God is about to do. He is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham is not okay with this. Abraham's heart hurts 
with this. So it says in verse 23, then Abraham approached him and said, he approached God and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, the Lord said? Or the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Solomon, I will spare, or Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham is like, I'm going all in. My heart hurts. Like there are righteous, God, there are righteous people in this city. If, I, if there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you, will you save the city? And really this begins like this almost kind of bargaining that's going on. But when we talk to God, we call it prayer. Abraham at this point is really having a conversation with God. He is praying to God with God about this entire thing. And so Abraham, like it, it kind of jars some readers here, because isn't God sovereign? Like, doesn't God understand everything? How can, how can God not know if there's 50 or 45 or however many? God knows already how many righteous people are in Sodom. That does not change. Okay, God absolutely knows. But Abraham's prayers, they're, they're bold, but they were made with kind of genuine humility and reverence, recognizing who God is. Will not the judge of the entire earth and so we're going to skip a couple of verses because it gets pretty lengthy. I'm, I'm going through the G version of this story, by the way. There is a very rated R version in all of chapters 18 and 19 that you're welcome to go through. Okay? But that, I'm going to skip a few verses because, because essentially it goes back and forth. And Abraham's like, hey, get, what, if I, what if there's 50 righteous people? And God's like, fine, if there's 50. And then he's like, well, 45, no 40, no 30, no 20. Like if, if there's 20 righteous people, will you spare the city? And God's like, yep. And then he goes like this in verse 32. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry. So Abraham knows he's pushing his luck at this point. He's like, hey, don't be mad, right? You know, like when you came home and you, you disappointed your parents, right? Like, hey, don't be mad. Is what Abraham's saying here. And then he said, hey, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just, just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Okay, so let me give you, let me give you some context here. Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, was dispatched in an in incredible debauchery. Okay, there's a ton of sexual sin that's noted in the text. Okay, this includes homosexuality. This includes perversion. This also included, according to Ezekiel 16, the sin that's going on is arrogance, gluttony, and being unconcerned with God. Okay, so while homosexuality seems, seems to be the main sin that God is dealing with, it isn't the only thing that the city was struggling with. Here's my frustration with some of these texts, is oftentimes when we read texts like this in Sodom and Gomorrah, it's entire two-plus chapters of Scripture, and a lot of people, we read it and we walk away thinking, oh, homosexuality is a sin. While that is indeed true, you should probably be walking away with more than homosexuality is a sin from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah isn't just about homosexuality, but while the Bible teaches that homosexuality is wrong in both, and, both the Old and New Testament, we need to recognize that this story is a lot more, isn't just about one specific sin. This story is about God's wrath. It's about God's, God's wrath, something we don't like to talk about. So let's, so let's for a second go back to the state of man. 
Okay, we are fallen creatures all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. God creates man, Adam and Eve. Everything's perfect. Everything's good in chapters 1 and 2. Man, we got two chapters right in all of humanity. We're doing pretty terrible. So chapters 1 and 2, man is perfect. God creates man perfect. Chapter 3 comes around. Serpent enters, convinces Eve to take a bite of the apple. Man, I can't believe she did that. Um, Then she convinced her husband to do it as well. Just kidding. The man should have put on his big boy pants. He didn't do it. Guys, we're at fault too. So Genesis 3, a fall of man. Sin enters into the world. Man is inherently bad at that point. From that point forward, we all have a sin nature that we have inherited. Now let's talk about the nature of God. So we recognize that, that man is inherently bad. Let's talk about the nature of God. God is perfect. God is holy. If there is one attribute that I could use to describe who God is, it would be holy because every other attribute comes out of his holiness. So while God is indeed love and his love is holy and his love is perfect, guess what? God is also wrath and God's wrath is also holy and perfect. And God is just and not just just, it is holy and perfect. And every other one of his attributes are holy and perfect. It's why God is, like, God cannot be, cannot stand to be near sin in his perfection, in his holiness. Holiness actually means set apart. Set apart from what? Set apart from sin. Set apart from everything else. He is holy and set apart. It's the whole reason why God is not with Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. And Jesus utters those words that I'm sure that we'll talk about in two weeks on Easter. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God could not be near the sin that Jesus was incurring as he was on the cross. God hates sin. He detests sin, and sin needs to be atoned for. And that's where we find ourselves in this story. A payment needs to be made if a perfect God is going to allow an imperfect creation into his midst. Atonement has to be made. This is why in the Old Testament it talks about animal sacrifice. It talks about how to stay clean. Okay, read Leviticus. Good luck staying clean. And it's why in the New Testament, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. One sacrifice, really, to end all sacrifices. God's wrath, his perfect, holy wrath, has to be satisfied. Romans 6.23 tells us, for, for the wages of sin is death. So any sin, the wages of sin, any sin, doesn't matter how big, how small, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So by that account, anyone who sins deserves death. Anyone who sins deserves wrath. And in this instance that we're talking about, it is a, it is a spiritual death here that they're talking about in Romans 6.23. Now, while sin has brought on physical death as well, it's talking about spiritual death. For the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. You know what we call that? Hell. Eternal separation. So anyone who has sinned in their lives cannot be near God. Now, just real quick, show of hands. Raise your hand if you haven't sinned in your life. Good, we're clear. No, we're almost clear. Now that they've lied, so we're good now. 
Okay, so the wages, so, so anybody who has sinned deserves death, deserves God's wrath. It causes a separation that can't be repaired apart from sacrifice. Something, or in our case, someone, has to atone for our sin or else condemnation is ours. That is a foundational principle of Christianity, that man is inherently bad and deserving of death. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we want to see the good in people. We want it to be God is love. And while that is true, we can't neglect the fact that God is also just and wrath. His holy wrath has to be satisfied. So back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? Sin is pervasive in the city. Okay? Sin is everywhere in this city. And that sin leads to destruction. Okay, spoiler alert, there were not 10 people who were righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. God knew that. And so because of that, God's like, hey, it's time for me to destroy it. Genesis 19, verses 24 and 25. It says, then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So just to be clear, let's, let's read again what it is that God just did to this city. Then the Lord rain down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. There, like, there, there is no room here for interpretation. This is pretty locked up. From the Lord, he rained down sulfur on a city and destroyed everyone in it. Everyone. One of the things that we, we kind of skipped over is Lot and his family. That's actually Abraham's nephew. Uh, got out of the city, right? Him, his two daughters, and his wife. His wife actually turns around and looks. God tells him, don't turn around and look at anything that's happening. She turns around and looks. She turns into a pillar of salt, right? I was always curious. Maybe you were too, like growing up. Like, what's a pillar of salt look like? I looked it up. It's like a salt. It's salt that looks like a pillar. It's crazy. <laughs> she turns it. So, so God, though, saves the righteous. He's like, hey, you four, go. Three of them made it out from there. That is not ten righteous people. And there is destruction for everybody else who is not righteous. So let's take one more step and recognize what it means to be righteous in the Old Testament. Because if you're me, like I want to be on the right side of things. I want to make sure that between this whole like righteous and unrighteous thing, that I make it onto like the righteous side. So in the Old Testament, righteous simply means to be just, perfect, upright, worthy, or without blame. Those are the words that are translated, the best translations. That's not to say they never sinned. That's not to say they never did anything wrong. It simply means that if they did sin, they atoned for it. Okay? They were righteous. So as hard as, as, hard, as hard as it is for us to come to terms with, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed and they deserved it. That's heavy. Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed and they deserved it. Okay, I do, I do want to sit in that for a second because that's a hard sentence. Where, where sin is pervasive, God's wrath is rightfully and justifiably poured out. That is a basic tenet of Christianity. It is a hard one. 
It's a whole lot easier. And if you're new with us and you're like, man, this church, all they talk about is wrath. It's not. I promise. We talk about God's love too. Okay, but we have to come to an understanding that God is completely and totally just. God is perfect and holy. But where sin is pervasive, God's wrath is justifiably poured out. And that's a hard sentence because we want to fight for what is right. We want to fight for what is just, but God is the one who's perfect and holy. And as long as, as long as he is perfect and holy, we don't get to make the rules regarding righteousness. He does. Because I'm not perfect and I'm not holy. Ask my wife. You're not perfect. You're not holy. None of us are. God is the one who gets to make those rules. And right now, man, I hope, I hope you're wondering, like, hey, aren't we talking about loving where you live? Are you talking about, like, God just, like, raining down sulfur uh, upon uh, Kings County? Because it's a sad story of Sodom, and, but we have, like, we have to take a look at that same series of events. But, 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 but like, let's, lose, let's zoom in just a little bit, okay? Because, because God's wrath is, is indeed pervasive okay so your setting then is is the old the setting then is is Sodom and Gomorrah that's our setting Sodom and Gomorrah and in in Sodom and Gomorrah sin is pervasive and and when a righteous man found out that sin was pervasive and God was going to destroy the city that righteous man prayed to God he did his best to intercede on the city's behalf. He even started bargaining with God. And then what did God do? God delivered the righteous and destroyed the unrighteous. Okay. And we're okay with that for the most part because it's an Old Testament story. Let's make it modern. Same series of events. Same series of events. Because nothing has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Nothing about God's character has changed. God is, is just as full of love in the Old Testament as he, is, as he is in the New Testament. God is just as full of wrath in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. So the setting now, modern day setting, is Kings County. In Kings County, sin is pervasive. Our job as believers, not because we are righteous, but because God made us righteous, is to pray for deliverance for our city. Pray for deliverance where we live. God will deliver the righteous, and there are destruction for those who are not righteous. And as hard as it is to come to terms with, in the same way that that last sentence I said was difficult, people in Kings County will be destroyed, and we all deserve it. That's the heaviness, that's the reality of man being sinful. Because all of us deserve death. Every single one of us deserve it. All of us are sinners in desperate need of a savior. We pray that at the end of every single service. When we say the ABCs, I, we, uh, every week I say, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. This is why. Because man is inherently bad. That's the message of the gospel that God came, he sent his son to rescue us from our badness, from our sin. 
And the hard part is, if you've been in church for a long time, my guess is that you've probably become a little bit callous to the idea that those people who die without the recognition of Christ as their Savior are destroyed for eternity. And we as the church just kind of seem to be okay with it. We just kind of are, are okay with it. We have loved ones we haven't talked to about it. We have neighbors who don't yet know about Jesus. We have co-workers where we exchange pleasantries about the weather with. All the while, the wrath of God is waiting for them on the other side of eternity. Not because they're worse than you or me, but simply because we know, I know, that Jesus Christ came and is my Savior. And they have not yet made that decision. That should shake you. Because you know a better way. You have a path forward for them. You have a path forward for you that paves a way towards righteousness and eternal glory. In order to love where you live, you have to talk about hard things. You have to. You have to tell people about Jesus. You have to be willing to wade into, into the uncomfortable to allow those who don't know Jesus a chance at knowing Jesus. We have to have a sense of urgency. And I think that's what's missing in Western American churches is a sense of urgency about what is actually happening. This isn't a bubble to fill in on a survey regarding your religious affiliation. It's a whole lot more than that. John 9, 4 actually says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Like, hey, look, as long as I can, I need to put the work forth to proclaim the gospel of Christ. When Abraham heard that God was going to destroy the town that his nephew lived in, he went and he pleaded with God. He bargained with him for a better outcome. And when God didn't see even 10 people who, who were righteous, he burned the city down. But Abraham, hearing about it, sparked movement in him. I have to do something. What is it that I can do? He knew he had to do something because destruction was imminent. Destruction was imminent. If you haven't caught on yet, let me be the, the first to tell you, wherever it is that you live, whether it be in Kings County or you're joining us from somewhere else, destruction is imminent and you need to do something about it. In order to love where you live, you need to be urgent about the proclamation of Jesus. And it's hard. I get it. it's hard because we think to ourselves, I'm just like an ordinary person. I'm living an ordinary life. None of us are incredible evangelists who's like, who are going to see millions and millions of people come to faith, but it doesn't exempt us from the responsibility of sharing about Jesus in our lives. It doesn't. I don't care if you're gifted as an evangelist or administrator. Every single person is responsible for proclaiming the name of Jesus. But we're ordinary people, and ordinary people with a sense of urgency and the correct message do extraordinary things through Christ. I mean, 11 twelfths of, of Jesus' disciples were ordinary people. I mean, they were all ordinary people, but 11 twelfths of them went on to do extraordinary things because of their interaction with Jesus and the work of the Spirit in their lives. I mean, they were dumb for the most part. I mean, at least by today's standards, I didn't, I didn't talk to any of them. But like there were fishermen, and if you're a fisherman, I'm sorry. I don't know if that was like a, a too broad reaching. 
But there were fishermen and tax collectors. Tax collectors, I do mean it. But there were just ordinary, like ordinary people who simply decided that, hey, look, like there is, a, there is an urgency here to this message of the gospel. This is something that needs to be shared. And when we read the Bible, it really doesn't seem to take long to see that there, there is a clear command to evangelize to those people who don't yet know Jesus, those who were destined to destruction, just like all of us once were. Regardless of how we do it, assuming the method is biblical, Christians should be evangelizing. We see the apostles and their example, but we, we see Jesus himself giving clear examples, clear clear directive to his church to go and tell people about him. I don't normally do this. I'm just going to read scripture over you guys for a second, and it's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to hear it. Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Luke 14, 23, and the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts 1, 7 and 8, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. Last one, Mark 16, 15 and 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has, been, he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. It is right there. If you claim to believe the Bible, if you claim to believe in God who inspired God and the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture, it's right there. It's not an option. It's not a feeling. It is a mandate from the gospel, from the mouth of Jesus himself. And based on all of this, what we need to pull away from is that the gospel needs to be shared because destruction is imminent. Because the base of it all, the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. And, the, and there cannot be good news without bad news. The bad news is destruction. The bad news is God's wrath. And whether or not you decide that you are going to live according to God's word or you're going to live and suffer God's wrath. That's why as we're going through this series, we're continuing to talk about this idea of oikos. If you're new with us, I guess it's a word we throw around quite a bit. The, the word oikos, it's a Greek word. It means household. It doesn't mean yogurt. A lot of people think it means yogurt. Oikos means household. Okay? And, and what we say is that each and every one of us has 8 to 15 people in our oikos, our household, that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed in our lives to make an impact for the kingdom of God. We have relationships with these people. I'm not asking you to go evangelize in the corner. If you want to, great. Just be loving while you do it. I'm not asking you to go knock on doors. If you do it, great. Just be kind when you do it and expect people to ignore you. Okay, but what I'm asking you and what I'm telling you is that there is a mandate to talk to people about Jesus and you already have those people in your life. You already have relationships 
where these, with these people. And the urgency of the gospel should spur you forward toward proclamation, towards proclamation regarding the gospel. Can you imagine if the church simply like got serious about sharing their faith just with their oikos, just those people who were in their lives? Like with a sense of urgency though, that we, that we, we pleaded with God in the same way that Abraham pleaded with God for the deliverance of Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that we would plead with God for the deliverance of our, of our county, for the deliverance of our oikos, where we live. Like what would it, ha- what would it look like I ran some basic numbers, which is always pretty fun. You know, when Christ was, was resurrected, okay, best estimates are that there was between 100 million and 500 million people on earth, okay? We don't really know. The census hasn't come in from that yet. Okay, so I went with about 300 million, okay? That, okay, let's say there's about 300 million people on earth. You know, 300 million people divided by 12, Right, the, the ratio of believers to non-believers was one to 27 million people, roughly, give or take a million or two. Right, one to 27 million people. You know what the ratio is today by best estimates? One in nine. One in nine. One believer for every nine non-believers. You know what's really fun about that number nine? It's in between eight and 15. It's in between 8 and 15. If, if the church, and not just the Western church, but the global church got serious about the proclamation of Jesus and simply said, hey, I'm going to tell people who are in my oikos about this Jesus guy and what he has done in my life, that he has saved me from the wrath of God. He has provided that lifeboat for me so I didn't have to suffer the wrath. He incurred it on himself. Do you want to be a part of that? Because going to heaven sounds a whole lot better than being destroyed for eternity. Like, if we got serious about that, how quickly would we be able to drop that ratio from one and nine to one and one? For the Lord to be able to come back. And scripture's clear, it's never going to get to one to one. There will always be people who do not believe. That being said, that's not our responsibility to sort that out. It's our responsibility to share the word and God's responsibility to judge the world, not ours, because he's holy and perfect and not us. But we have a responsibility to share the name of Christ every single day. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, man, uh, thank you for your wrath. And that's, a, that's hard to say, God, but, but the recognition of who you are allows me to say it. The recognition of your holiness and your perfection allows me to say thank you for your justice, thank you for your wrath, and thank you for the gospel of Jesus who came and incurred that wrath for each and every one of us. But God, I pray as a church that we would have a sense of urgency in our lives that we would have a sense of urgency about proclaiming your name. We'd have a sense of urgency about proclaiming your son and what he did on the cross for us, recognizing that destruction is imminent. God, I pray that we would get busy sharing your son's name. And maybe you're here, you're joining us online, and you've, it's pretty clear, message here today 
about your wrath and, and you sending your son to incur that for us, that you're not a mean, vengeful, spiteful God, but you're a God who rescues his creation from brokenness. That you're a God who, who provided a lifeboat for us when our trajectory was hell. That you changed our trajectory through your son, Father. Thank you for that. And if you've never accepted that free grace, you could pray along with me and make that proclamation today. Just in the quietness of your heart, say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm a sinner deserving wrath in need of your Son, who is my Savior. And B, I believe that you sent him to die on the cross for me to incur that wrath so I wouldn't have to. That as he died, he was resurrected three days later. He conquered death so we could be with you forever. Thank you for providing that lifeboat for us, Father. And see, I choose to follow you every single day. And as believers, that's the recognition of sharing the gospel with those people that we come into contact with, those people that we have relationships with in our Oikos. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.